The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Rebecca D'Souza. She is an associate professor of communication at the University of Minnesota Duluth, and she is the author of the book we are going to be discussing today titled Feeding the Other, Whiteness, Privilege, and Neoliberal Stigma in Food Pantries. It was published by the MIT Press. I will say that Dr. D'Souza's professional statement and her overarching goal of her research is to understand the emancipatory potential of communication. How can we use communication to answer the practical problems of socio-political life, particularly issues of justice and inequality? And her research over the last 15 years has revolved around the themes of health, medicine, food, marginality, and culture, and it has followed the trials and uncertainties that individuals and communities encounter when they enter the health, medical, and social welfare systems. Her work typically vacillates between studying individuals and communities in the margins on one hand and institutions of power and privilege on the other. Welcome, Dr. D'Souza. Thank you. Well, I am honored to have you with me today. And I am so interested in your research because I, too, love the power of words and language and communication. And in reading your book, I thought, wow, this is so true about how we describe people who rely on food banks and food pantries. And what are the real issues behind the need? Do we blame people? Do we victimize them? Is that unique to the United States? So we're going to dive into some of those issues. But first, I'm really curious about your own personal background. You actually grew up in India, and you attended college in Bangalore, India. Tell me, how did you get from India to the United States? So that is a really good question, and it's been a while since I've been here, almost 20 years. But I did do my undergraduate education in India, and then I worked for a couple of years. And I think I just got bored working and doing sort of the same thing. And I wanted to do something more with my mind. And I knew I wanted to study more. And the American dream is well and alive in India, more so, I think, than here. And so that was where I looked for opportunities. And and so I ended up at Purdue University. It was just one of the four places that I applied to. And that's where I did my master's. I thought I'd stay for my master's and then go back to India and continue working. At that time, I was really interested in uh, sort of what you're doing now, media and technology and telecommunications. Mm -hmm. But as I started studying and getting into the work and looking at the diversity of what communication, the field of communication had to offer, I got very interested in this field called health communication. And I ended up staying for my PhD. And that's what my PhD ended up being in health communication. Mm, There was just something about the field that, as you read in my earlier bio, just connected with people, connected with issues that I was concerned with, 
And so it motivated me. Yeah. So health communication is kind of a big umbrella, at least from my perspective. What led you to look specifically at individuals who navigate the food system and in particular having to navigate systems where we're giving people food? Yeah. So I think the one of the best things about the work that I do is that it allows me that flexibility. The methodologies that I use allow me to explore a variety of different themes and topics. So it's rather interesting that when I started out in this work and studying hunger and food insecurity, I came at it from a health perspective. I was really interested in those public health questions, in nutrition, you know, how were people faring in terms of the nutrition that they were getting and the quality of food that they were getting at food pantries. And my research itself was a lot of in-depth interviews. I'd done focus groups before that. And while nutrition came up and people talked about health a lot, there was a larger context within which they were talking about these nutritional issues. And that was stigma. And so that's how I got into looking at stigma and looking at not just the stigma that people experience, but also how people are stigmatized within these spaces. So it was kind of a very long road, and that's why it took so long to actually write this book, because the focus shifted a little bit along the way. Mm -hmm. Let's define stigma. I did a little search in preparation Mm -hmm. for our interview because I thought, well, how would I define stigma? And how is stigma similar or different from a stereotype? Let's put these terms into perspective for our listeners. Wow, that's a really great question. So I think we could think about stereotype as being part of the package of what is stigmatizing. So it is a smaller kind of communicative device that we use to stigmatize people. Mm-hmm. And stigma is the broader concept. Mm-hmm. And a stereotype produces stigma. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting coming from India and comparing maybe how people are viewed in one part of the world versus how they are viewed here. And there are so many questions on my list because I find your research to be absolutely fascinating. But in the United States, we seem to have a neoliberal stigma. Define that for me. Yeah, so neoliberal stigma. So first of all, you know, let me just talk a little bit about neoliberalism and then talk about neoliberal stigma. So neoliberalism is really a political theory. It's a political economic theory. Uh, And it basically argues that we work best and human well-being can be best advanced and progressed by using, by, through entrepreneurialism, right? Mm-hmm. And through entrepreneurial skills, through free, a free market economy and minimal government intervention. So it very much lines up with the more conservative way of thinking about economics and politics. And that's neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Now, when I talk about neoliberal stigma, what I'm really talking about is how those kinds of political ideas become, we start to identify with them so closely that they come to shape how we think about ourselves Mm -hmm. as well as others, and then also social and systemic issues. Mm -hmm. So these ideas inform our values and identity, 
and soon what starts to happen in this mindset is that we start to think that, okay, if you're entrepreneurial and you're successful and you're economically successful and you're wealthy, then you are valuable in society. Right. Whereas if you're not successful and you're not contributing in economic terms, right, enhancing the GDP, then you're devalued. Mm-hmm. And maybe while it doesn't start off in that way, what ends up happening is that we basically devalue people who do not have or poor people, low-income people. Right. So I think a quick way to think about neoliberal stigma, it's basically the stigma of poverty and the stigma of welfare and the stigma of race all kind of are congealed together. So are these stigmas the same in India, or are they unique to the United States, do you think? That's a really interesting question. And, you know, I, I think <laughs> my next step in this would be to try and track those ideas nationally, you know, internationally. But I do think that there is something very uniquely American about this kind of a stigma. I think we are starting to see neoliberal stigmas intensified in places like India, because neoliberalism has also taken hold as a mm. political theory. I, so I think it does move, but it's certainly more intense over here. So I think at the heart of neoliberal stigma is the stigma of poverty. The idea that poor people are, quote, lazy, morally mm-hmm. defective, irresponsible, make poor decisions, and don't want to work. Mm-hmm. Those five or six stereotypes sum up this neoliberal stigma. Right. And what's really interesting about it is that it started somewhere in the 1300s. We find it in, you know, talking about international, right? I mean, it started off in the UK where we see these ideas first come to the forefront and also then become codified in laws and legislations, these ideas about poor people. And then they come, they travel to the United States And then if you think about it, we're in 2019, and the same idea has traveled from the 1300s, from the Middle Ages to 2019, in almost almost unchanged in some ways. If I ask students today, you know, what are some stereotypes that you hear circulating about the poor? I typically don't say, what do you think about poor people? But sometimes if they're brave enough, they'll say, yes, I thought that too. But they say these exact same words. They're lazy, morally, don't have good values or morals. They don't take care of themselves. And they don't want to work. So it's rather interesting. Yeah. And you know what's really interesting? I mean, you focused your book on food pantry users, But I have also witnessed this in a hospital setting where people who are poor and who don't have access to good food, maybe they have to use a pantry or their communities are just not well suited to offering affordable, healthful foods. But it's the person who then ends up in the hospital, of course, with a related illness, maybe diabetes or heart disease and maybe they're overweight, and then that person is victimized even within the healthcare system. So this underlying cultural narrative, I think, reaches how we think about people who are using social safety nets, 
But these same cultural narratives influence how people are treated, even in the healthcare system. I don't know if you've looked at that as well. I think you're absolutely right. I do talk a little bit about that in my book as well. That this idea, the same, very same ideas, apply to a multitude of contexts. And if you think about the fat stigma, as we might call it, right, right. or weight bias, right. you find the same language. Yes. Right. Lazy, irresponsible, don't want to work, right? Or don't want to work hard at this. Right. Make poor decisions. Right. Morally defective. And health in some way has become almost morality today. So I don't find it surprising at all that you would find that in a healthcare setting because it applies and it's being used in multiple arenas. Well, and I think that we operate oftentimes in silos. There's the nutrition world, there's the agriculture world, there's medicine, there's communication. And how brilliant is it for you to bridge these disciplines and recognize how important it is that we focus on how we communicate and the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that become part of our cultural fabric and how they influence people so deeply in terms of their well-being we should back up. I want to start at the very beginning of your book because you begin your story with a woman who is depending on Wick. And she talks about how she is treated. Her name is Trinity. And she talks about going in and using these services that are designed to help people when they're down and out by no fault of their own many times, I might add. But the caseworker is not kind to her. And I wonder how often people are confronted in settings of dependence where the person who is doling out a meager hand up is maybe coming to the table with those preconceived ideas, those stereotypes and stigmas, and that influences how they see the person in need. I think that's probably one of the biggest takeaways from my book. That that is happening, and and it was Miss Trinity, and that's why I use her story right at the start of the book. But my participants talked about it all the time, that when they would encounter the system, and the system usually, and they encounter the system in multiple ways through people, right, individuals acting on behalf of the system, so caseworkers or the person in the benefits office or even the volunteers at the food pantries. They're all part of the system, that there is stigma there. But the other thing that I, there is sort of this devaluing. They have this mindset, and the person recognizes that there is this mindset and that there are these discourses that are circulating and floating around, and that's why they're receiving this negative treatment. So for Trinity, one of the things that I write about later is that this is, the black welfare queen stereotype. Right. We talked about how stereotypes produce stigma, and stigma being that larger concept. But the black welfare queen, again, in quotes and in caps, right, is right. a stereotype. It's a particular stereotype that actually was used by Reagan in a speech that he gave, and that's where it originates. It's a story that he told in a speech, and from there... It just gathered steam and momentum and then has been circulated wow. right, for the last 40 years. So in particular, among my participants, you know, and this is how race plays a role as well. For people of color, there is this heightened sense of scrutiny. They feel it. They know it's happening. They recognize 
the stereotypes floating around them. Mm. And then, of course, they show up in the conversations as well when they're in the benefits office, for instance. The other thing to add, too, though, about this kind of stigma is that it doesn't just happen interpersonally. And that's one thing that I try to write about in the book as well. But it happens in the absence of people as well. And this is sometimes called structural stigma, where it's in the paperwork, it's in the bureaucracy, right? Mm -hmm. It's in how we lay out the food. It's in the laws and the legislation. So it's not just that people experience it one-on-one, but they're also confronting it in the very systems that they are trying to navigate. Right. Let me take one break because we're halfway, and I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Rebecca D'Souza. She is an associate professor of communication at the University of Minnesota Duluth, and she is the author of the book we're talking about today titled Feeding the Other, Whiteness, Privilege, and Neoliberal Stigma in Food Pantries, published by MIT Press. So this is quite a burden for an individual to bear. And I was recently in Baltimore, and Baltimore is a very interesting city. There's a wealthy section, and then there are pockets of extreme poverty just right up against each other. And I was meandering through the city, and I found myself in one of these pockets, and I thought, how on earth do people ever climb out? In addition to the cultural narratives and stigma, we also have a society that is not really finding good paying jobs so that people can rise up and get out of this system. They're stuck in this stigma. I'm curious, for example, a part of what you write about is the need to ask questions. So you have a character in your book, John. He was a former environmental engineer. He is now homeless. And around his homelessness, of course, there comes a cultural narrative. But you suggest that we start asking questions like, why is he homeless? And if more of us could ask questions like that, why are we seeing so many single men out on the street What happened in our society? What fell apart that would even lead us to have so much need or to have somebody who has this past, a great working profession, suddenly homeless? And I think if more of us ask questions like the why questions, maybe we could really come up with some policy answers. Right. One of the things we do know is that poverty is one of the biggest indicators or predictors of hunger and food insecurity. Those two things go hand in hand with each other. The cause of hunger and food insecurity is poverty and low income or no income, right? Having no income or being in sort of a low income category. And that's really, I think, an important point because then you start to look at different solutions to it, Mm -hmm. right? So the solution then is no longer let's just dole out cans of food to people, because that's going to fix just one piece of the problem, and it doesn't also do it very well. So it's not an adequate solution. If the problem is unemployment, the economy, the fact that we have huge uh, disparities in terms of income and Mm -hmm. wealth, and a lot of it is a result of history and legacies that we're still living with um, in terms of wages and in terms of who got paid for doing the work. 
mm-hmm. and who didn't get paid for doing the work, who has had the opportunity to accumulate wealth and own their homes and who hasn't, who has had the opportunity to live in a good neighborhood and who hasn't. And these have all been codified in, in laws and have now we are seeing the result of it. So you talked about Baltimore. I mean, we see that in Duluth, Minnesota. Sure. This residential segregation. Mm-hmm. And that has a huge impact, right? Even something like that has a huge impact on uh, your ability to earn an income. Mm-hmm. So in Duluth, for instance, there are some jobs available, but in order to get to, to those jobs, people need transport. Now, the jobs are all by the mall, and the people are, because of housing policies in the past, are all restricted to an area downtown, and that's where poor people tend to live. Mm-hmm. And so it's really hard for them to get to the jobs, right, and to the better-paying jobs. So, yeah, I think we need to ask those questions, and I think what we'll find is we need broad policy changes. We need to increase the minimum wage. We need better transportation policies increased SNAP benefits. A lot of my participants talked about putting their children through college and that then having an impact on how much money they had to spend on food. So if you think about college education and what that costs, you were talking about health care. That came up in a lot of my participants' stories as well, that there was this big health care cost or their health deteriorated. Uh, and so now they spend on medicine and cannot pay for food. So it's this livelihood juggle that they are engaged in. Right. And I think that what your book does is help us see why we need a lot more compassion and a lot less acceptance of these cultural narratives. And getting back again to that intro where you describe this whole idea, the Puritan belief system that if you work hard, you're going to get somewhere and understanding that for some of us that works out. But for many of us, it's really a myth. And I think it's important for us to look at these stories that you've outlined for us to really understand. Like getting back to John, he is in a homeless shelter, and it was a series of health events that led to his unemployment, food insecurity, homelessness, and so on. So having access to a a basic level of health care would also be extremely helpful for the society. Exactly. I want to ask you, who did you write this book for? This is a good question. I think I wrote this book, and the way in which I wrote it was for the people who were experiencing hunger and food insecurity. You know, I talked to several people. So I talked to volunteers. I talked to organizers. I talked to people in politics. Then I talked to clients, you know, people who are, who are hungry and food insecure and who use these food pantries. And I made an intentional effort to write the book from their perspective. Mm -hmm. But it is written for people in positions of power. Yes. I was going to say, I would really like for registered dietitians to read this book. You know, anybody who is working at that interface of being involved in the system, maybe even writing policies, meeting with people who are dependent upon food stamps and really understanding what led them there, and the real structural challenges that they have to face in going through that system of the handout. And of course, you also write that charity sustains food injustice. Tell me a little bit more about that. 
Yes, I mean, I think this is one of the most challenging parts about writing this book that I had to now tell people who think they are doing good in the world by either donating to a food pantry or who are involved in charity. And now I have to tell them that, you know what, that's not really helping. And you think you're helping, but what it's really doing is sustaining the current system. It's a short-term solution that gets people through a week in terms of food, but it does nothing to fix the long-term challenges that they face. And it does absolutely nothing for meeting their aspirations as human beings. Right. To feel human, to feel fully human. Mm-hmm. Charity is, it, it doesn't use a human rights approach, and that's also sort of what I talk about in the book that we need to look at food just as we need to look at healthcare, I think, as a human right. People have the right to adequate food, and it shouldn't be left to the good intentions of good people right. in order to have that. Yeah. So, being a communications expert, having expertise in the value and the ways in which we communicate for persuasiveness, how do we shift narratives that are not helping our society? So I think in my book, since I focused on food pantries, I really think there's a lot of power that food pantries and people who work within them and the volunteers within them have because they are closest to the people experiencing hunger and food insecurity, they see them regularly. Mm-hmm. I think we, in terms of how, I think we need to use these stories to shift those dominant narratives that we have. We need to show that these are, you know, normal people. They're not lazy. They're not making bad decisions. In fact, they make really good decisions given their constraints. It's not that they don't know how to cook or don't know how to eat healthy. They have full knowledge of what nutrition, you know, what that means. You know, right. I asked them a question about the meanings of good food, and they pretty much came up with all the meanings that you and I would have for good food. Of course. Right? And the fluidity of those meanings as well. So I think we need to have more of those stories. I also think a critical thing that we need to do is de-link welfare and food assistance from criminality. That yeah. is something that has happened because of neoliberalism and in the last 30 years, you sort of see this frame. What's been put in the frame has been poverty, welfare, and criminality, where as soon as you evoke a poor person, you also evoke this notion of a poor person being a criminal out to scam the system. Mm -hmm. And both of these ideas are really powerful because they're sitting in our heads and it's in one frame. Mm -hmm. And we need to somehow use stories to de-link them. And not even stories. I think we need to just come out and say it. You know, that poor people, they're not criminals. A person who asks and tries to receive food assistance, that's an entitlement. That's a human right. Then it's a human right because we don't have a system that allows everybody to have access to everything. And so that's why we have entitlements, because in the absence of that, then you have entitlements. And So I think that's how we need to start shifting those narratives. Mm -hmm. Well, I really want to thank you for this book, Dr. D'Souza. I think that it has a wide range of audiences who could benefit from reading and having a better look at 
some of the reasons why we think and act the way we do. So I'm very grateful. And I want to thank our listening audience for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Rebecca D'Souza, Associate Professor of Communication at the University of Minnesota Duluth. We've been talking about her book, Feeding the Other, Whiteness, Privilege, and Neoliberal Stigma in Food Pantries. Thank you so much for this engaging, eye-opening, and enlightening book.